but for babies, it's very comfortable. And um, if we have them flat from a spinal development perspective, it really helps prevent issues with the development of the spine. The reason we want it to be also flat and not inclined and flat is that positional um, positional asphyxiation is really the term for it. We want to try to avoid them having any kind of head, chin to chest where their airway could be compromised. Welcome to Raising Greatness, where we ask the questions every parent wants to know. I'm Ryan Adams. And in today's episode, I speak with Holly Choi, a leading child injury and prevention educator in North America. Her extensive knowledge in baby and toddler safety, first aid, car seat safety, and child proofing are unmatched. Join us as we address the most injury prone stages in a baby's development, the top three dangers for infants, proactive versus reactive child proofing, the vital life saving skills every parent needs to know the unseen risks of your car seat, whether weighted blankets or sunscreen are safe for babies, when we need to worry when a baby is sweating, and so much more. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So as a new parent, obviously safety is on the mind. And I've got a four-month-old little baby boy now, uh, Chase, who hasn't quite started crawling just yet, but I think it's just any day now. So as a new parent um, with an infant, what are some of the top maybe two or three safety concerns or or safety things that we need to take into account as uh, the little one starts transitioning from not being too mobile to now being able to crawl and then soon to walk as well. Yeah, it all happens so fast. And one of my pillars of injury prevention, I like to say, is to avoid making assumptions about what a child is and isn't capable of. Because just like you said, the next day they might be doing it. Um, And so there's a lot of things when it comes to safety for babies and, you know, a few months later, toddlers, in terms of what is necessary right now. What do we need to be proactive about and what can we be a bit more reactive with? So at this age, when you start to see children becoming mobile, basically, everything in the house suddenly becomes a huge hazard. And anytime you go over to someone's house and they have like a six or seven or eight month old, you notice how clean their floors are or just that there's nothing on the bottom three shelves of their bookcases suddenly uh, because everything is, uh, oh, 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 don't, don't, don't touch that. Careful, careful. So for me, that is so funny. I never thought it's, about that, but you're so absolutely true. right with that. The clean yeah, floor. Yeah, it's like having a Too puppy, funny. basically. <laughs> so for me, there's a few really, really crucial things that you should be proactive about rather than reactive. And the biggest one for me um, is always anchoring furniture. I think this one is something that is probably the most overlooked hazard in homes for parents. And I say that because a lot of us, especially me, we talked about how I'm on the West Coast and, you know, here in Vancouver, this is an earthquake zone. Um, But other parts of North America don't necessarily think about earthquakes as much. And so they might not be thinking about anchoring furniture, what the importance behind that might be. But it's a hazard that exists in every home, regardless of where you are. 
So the dangers of furniture is that tip over incidents are so easy to happen and split second situations. And they are very potentially serious. They can be serious injuries all the way through to fatal injuries. So when we're talking about anchoring furniture, I always like to suggest to parents, try to take a step back in your home and think about what that room looks like to a toddler. Does a bookcase look like a ladder? Could I pull drawers out of a dresser and make myself a staircase? Is there something enticing up there that I might want to play with? Um, and sometimes that might even just be a TV remote. I mean, we know how much kids love TV remotes. <laughs> <laughs> so. Anytime you think that there is something that they could potentially climb, really the rule of thumb is to anchor it. So at a minimum, the recommendation is anything that is three feet tall or taller, anchor it. Um, generally speaking, if something is taller than it is deep, anchor it. But um, because I know people that have been personally affected, unfortunately, in a tragic situation with this, my rule of thumb is please, if you think it can tip, anchor it. Um, there's some great resources for parents around furniture anchoring because it can be confusing and overwhelming. Um, and the best resource is the Consumer Product Safety Commission Anchor It campaign. So they have a website, which is anchorit.gov, and they have video tutorials, how to get like really inexpensive anchoring kits. And it seems like something that you might put off until they're mobile, but be proactive with it because you get so busy and so distracted as a new parent. And when we talk about preventing injury, there's so many injuries we get second chances with. And with those tip over incidents, we're just really lucky if we do. So if you haven't done it yet, you know, uh, anyone listening, set some time aside this week and get it done. It's just the best peace of mind you can give yourself when you've got a young child at home. And then in terms of other things, I mean, if you've got stairs, use gates, right? Uh, gates and stairs are such a necessity. And if anyone is living in a single level home, it's a blessing when you've got a small child and maybe <laughs> don't move. <laughs> but uh, if you've got stairs, use gates. The importance with gates is we have to make sure we're using the correct gate depending on where it goes. So if you have stairs at the top of the stairs, it has to be a hardware mounted gate, meaning you have to screw it into your home. If it's the bottom of the stairs, or if you're dividing rooms on the same level, any type of gate is fine, because if it comes down, we're not worried about a child coming down the stairs with it. But those pressure mounted gates, the reason we can't use them at the top of the stairs and why we have to have a hardware mounted gate is the pressure mounted gates can easily be knocked out even by a baby if they just hit it at the right angle. We just don't want kids going down the stairs if a gate comes down. So always hardware mount to the top. Elsewhere in the home, you can use any option as long as we know there's not going to be a fall after it. So those are like my, my two really big ones that I want people to be proactive with because those are the ones that are going to prevent the most serious injuries. And then after that, you can be a bit more reactive. So I think, I mean, when you think of baby proofing, what's the first thing that comes to your mind with baby proofing? Outlets is oh, the first thing because I know I haven't yeah. done it yet. <laughs> it's always outlets. Yeah. And I think that's, we're so used to those little outlet plugs, but that's something you could be a bit more reactive with. And a lot of newer buildings have 
tamper-resistant outlets, and those are typically sufficient as is because you need to be able to insert both prongs into the outlet with the same pressure at the same time to be able to get the plug in, which is why sometimes we struggle <laughs> getting plugs into some outlets. It's probably because it's tamper-resistant. Um, but the one that I really challenge parents to think about is cupboard locks. We often think about, okay, yeah, I'm going to lock up the cleaning supplies, but a huge trend in the baby-proofing world is magnetic locks, and I will say they're great. They're great because you don't have, uh, you know, these unsightly locks all over your furniture. They're easy to use, but if you're cooking and you suddenly need to get a spatula out of that drawer next to you, it's a lot easier to have one of those standard push locks than it is to find the little magnetic key to open the the drawer to get your spatula. So those magnetic locks, they're super great for things you're not going to access all the time, like potentially your cleaning supplies. But for other things that you might still want regular access to in a pinch, consider just going the less expensive route on those because they do provide a bit quicker access. And that's sometimes <laughs> when you're frustrated and tired, what you need. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Okay, so I'm picturing that one of the first steps here when we're looking to baby proof a house is to get down on all four, um, you know, hands and knees and kind of crawl around and look at your apartment with a whole different perspective, a new vantage point. I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek here. But it seems to be that like we take it for granted from our vantage point of what's safe, what's not safe. But you're absolutely right. When you're down on the, the ground level, everything is different and everything becomes a little bit more of a uh, potential ladder, as you yeah. say, or a potential hazard. So I didn't realize that, that I guess it makes sense with technology that a lot of the new outlets are a little bit more tamper proof. I mean, this doesn't say um, no, obviously, you're not suggesting to not baby proof those, but uh, it sounds like most listeners right now, they have relatively safe outlets as opposed to maybe a couple of decades ago. So so that's good news. Um, you're absolutely right, though, with with the cupboards. I never really thought about that because, yeah, I mean, obviously, cleaning supplies is a huge issue. And if your baby's strong, then they're getting into everything. So um now, I guess you can't really just put like an elastic or, or something on the actual covers because not every handle will will, will um, match up, so to speak. So you really do have to look at either a push lock or a mechanical lock to keep those uh, covers closed. Totally. Yeah. And one of the things that about baby proofing is that they add up really quick. Even like eight of the magnetic locks can run you about $50, $60. And then you go, okay, but wait, I have... <laughs> I have more than eight covers. <laughs> a lot. So something that I also suggest parents do is you don't have to put a lock on every cupboard. Can you put all of the things that are dangerous in just a few cupboards and lock those ones? So um, instead of advice. putting locks on every bathroom sink, you know, could I just put all of the chemical stuff in one and maybe towels in another one or toilet paper in another one? And it might be a little less convenient to have things all, you know, sectioned out like that, but... It does make it easier to know that all the things that we need to keep away for baby are kept in those specific cupboards. And that way you're just less likely to have stuff lingering out. So obvious things like household chemicals, cleaning supplies, but is there some other dangerous items that might be normally stored on lower um, cupboards that we maybe 
don't think about as being dangerous? There is so much near ground level that uh, it is actually mind boggling. So like you said, getting on all fours is a great way to start because I can't tell you the number of times even, you know, I used to teach private classes in people's homes and I'd say, you know, just get down on all fours. And I would find things like a grape under the couch, which is like the leading choking hazard <laughs> for babies. Um, Interesting. And, you know, uh, I had a dad once accuse me of planting the grape. And then his wife was going, I was literally just <laughs> eating those like this morning. <laughs> so, but it's one of those things where, again, like if it rolls out of sight, out of sight, out of mind, we're not on that level all the time. So easy for that stuff to happen. Um, but another one is button batteries. Button batteries are a huge hazard. I have a friend named Leslie in Alberta and she, her daughter ingested a button battery um, and ended up thankfully surviving um, after multiple surgeries. But the thing about button batteries. Wow. Okay. okay so, 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 so a button battery is what would go into a watch, like one of those like yeah. flat kind of like a dime yeah, or a and nickel? Yeah, and they're in everything. Like we don't even realize that they're in everything. So a watch would be a great example. Um, our bathroom scales typically have them. Um, a lot of car key fobs have them. And then if you've got anything like flameless tea lights, like they're in everything. And in just, uh, you know, a few minutes of going around my home, I was able to collect up things that had batteries and how easy it is for kids to access those batteries. Because for us as adults, we want it to be easy. But if that product's not designed for kids, then it's not secured behind a screw and now they have access to it. So my friend Leslie, she's still to this day, years later, has no idea where her daughter got this button battery from. Um, still a huge mystery to her. But she's become such a huge advocate for making sure that parents understand the risks of button batteries. So bathroom scales are a really big one, but also be super careful with your remotes because if they drop, it's easy for that cover to fall off. Um, and my husband always gets mad at me because I tell people to put duct tape over the back of their remotes, which is a bit unsightly. <laughs> and um, <laughs> he thinks it looks pretty trashy and maybe it does, but it keeps my kids safe. Um, so, you know, keep those remotes out of reach. Um, sometimes having an extra remote that doesn't have batteries in it that they can just have as theirs is also not a bad idea. But that would be another one that's on the ground level. And for people with pets. Never thought about it, like. Yeah, just things underneath the couch. Like, did not think about that. And I guess um, for all the uh, the parents listening right now, bring yourself a, a broom and a dustpan because I'm assuming that right after you're going to be wanting to clean because you're going to see things that you didn't even realize need to be cleaned because you've never seen it from that perspective. But uh, yeah, if you don't have a cordless vacuum, this is the time to buy one. Yeah, yeah exactly. Get one. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's a link in the description. For totally. One, so. so for families that have pets, though, uh, that's another huge one, right? pet food that rolls away, um, pet dishes that kids could have access to. Um, and then uh, absolute worst case scenario, if anyone has a cat, litter boxes are such a nightmare for small kids because they have very low standards in life. And I'll just let everyone read between the lines <laughs> on that statement. But you want to make sure they don't have access to that stuff. So um, having a plan for that. And that might mean using baby gates. It might mean trying to find another place that you can put that stuff for the pet. So uh, you have to be a bit creative when you've got kids. But just make sure that first we focus on the child safety. And then once we've got that sorted out, we can decide how we're going to manage what to do about the pet stuff. 
Now you brought up um, a de-choking tool. W- what is that, and, and what would that be used for? So I mean, obviously, what it's used for, but what but what what is a de-choking tool? Yeah. So those de-choking devices, they're not currently recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics or the Canadian Pediatric Society, and it's not to say that necessarily that they wouldn't work. They might work in some scenarios. But as a first aid instructor, we know that first aid skills work. Those always will work for us, provided the situation is resolvable, they work. So as long as parents have gone out, taken a first aid class, like know their life-saving skills, that's a really important thing, um, use those first. But the de-choking devices, I like to call them plungers. Um, They really look like a plunger for the face. And uh, the most common one on the market is the LifeVac. Uh, effectively, the idea is that it creates suction, and much like a plunger, it would pull the object out. The issue with them is there just haven't been enough studies on them. The studies that have been done on them can only be done on cadavers because you can't ethically choke someone and then see if it works. <laughs> <laughs> they try and save right? them. Um, And the studies that were done were paid for by the company and overseen by the company that makes the device. So there's a bit of a conflict of interest issue there. Sure. So um, currently, there's just not enough data to know for sure if they are an effective tool enough that they should be um, promoted in any way. And the thing is, too, that while anecdotally, we'll often hear stories, like positive stories about them, we don't really know if the person was actually fully choking in those scenarios, or if they were still just, you know, gagging on something. So that's where it's a bit hard. Um, so that's why that that stance is out there. Um, I did uh, an Instagram live with my friend who is a emergency room pediatrician at Nationwide Children's Hospital in the US, all about feelings about those plunger devices and I have it on my Instagram if anyone wants to check it out afterward but it's yeah save your money really at the end of the day if you've got your first aid skills that's the most important thing you've always got your hands on you and that's really just the best peace of mind you can give yourself so talking about first aid um now obviously you need to take a class you need to learn from a professional but what would you say is maybe the top three first aid life-saving skills. I'm assuming um, the Heimlich maneuver. So if somebody's choking, um, mouth to mouth, what what would they be? Like if you could, if you could just wave a magic wand and every parent knows these three skills, what would they be? Yeah. So for me, I, when we teach our courses, we teach a really condensed workshop for parents because we know that parents really just need these core things that are going to save their kids. And we actually teach three things <laughs> in our workshops. Perfect. We teach CPR. So basically managing a, someone that's unconscious, whether they are breathing or not breathing. And if they're not breathing, that's where we would do CPR. So commonly referred to as mouth to mouth. Or if you're using like a pocket mask instead of putting your mouth on them. But mouth to mouth is a, a valid still way of doing CPR on your own family. And typically that's what we would be doing, especially on infants. Um, so knowing that, yes, number one, because uh, that is the most important life-saving skill. Two would be knowing your choking maneuvers. And they're different for babies than they are for toddlers. So very quickly, you need two different sets of information Um, So it is important that you're getting the full scope of that. And then for us, our third piece is always injury prevention um, rather than necessarily treating more um, wounds because 
we want parents to feel empowered to just prevent all of that stuff from happening. Um, and that's why we go so hard on that injury prevention, all of this stuff that I talk about um, regards to, you know, anchoring furniture and making sure you're using the correct gate. We go heavy on that because we want parents to make sure that that stuff just isn't happening. So those are my big three things. But if you're going to learn an actual third skill, it would be wound care for me because kids get lots of bumps and it is good to know just how to treat basic wounds, which fortunately isn't very difficult. Just slap some mud on it yeah. and let them right back out there. <laughs> um, okay, so there's a lot of things that we don't even really think about. Um, but I guess, like, you talk a lot about car seats and how filthy they are and how to clean them and in that whole process. Can you just maybe tell the listeners a little bit about car seats and, and cleaning them? Yeah. So um, whenever I do a car seat check with a new parent, I especially parents that are expecting, I try to prepare them that at some point this seat will be covered in bodily fluids. Um, and you will be very comfortable with bodily fluids very, very quickly if you aren't now. Um, that's just the reality of being a parent, really, at the end of the day. And 100%. <laughs> yeah. So you do need to know how to clean them. And the catch about car seats is that you have to clean them properly to maintain their integrity. Um, so all car seats on the market have to meet flammability testing standards. And Basically, how that's performed in North America is they try to light the car seat on fire and they count how many milliseconds it takes for the car seat to actually ignite. And some car seats do a better job of that naturally, depending on the fabric that they use. So seats that have merino wool in them, wool is naturally has a flame retardancy to it that it doesn't need really anything added to it. Um, and some other fabrics might have some added flame retardants. Um, I will say that it's well within the means of what is in the scope of, you know, our health regulations and it's very low, minimal, less than probably the rest of the vehicle, if we're being honest. But you just don't want that seat to be the most flammable thing in a vehicle if you're in some awful crash. So it's really key, read your manual, Every car seat is wildly different and they all have different rules based on how those fabrics are put together and what they've treated the fabrics with to make sure you're not washing any of that stuff out or mm. adding things that could make it more flammable. Um, like downy fabric softener, um, super flammable. <laughs> so yeah, really? so there's some things where just on like a pH level, how we're treating these things, you want to be super careful about what you're putting on um, your car seat. So check the manual because there's some seats, if you've got a particularly explosive kid there, uh, when you move up to your next car seat, there's some seats that can go in the washer and the dryer. And there's some seats that are hand wash, line dry only. And the only way you'll know that is if you look at the manual. And the good news is that most of that's on the manufacturer's website in a PDF. So if you're still in the buying process, you could look it up ahead of time if you know it's going to be an issue. Beautiful. One of the concerns for, for any parent, especially a new parent, is sleeping. Um, I know that for the first couple of weeks, it's just like you don't sleep a lot because every little <gasps> kind of like breathing apparition, 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 
any anomaly in the breathing, you're right away awakened. And so we're always wanting to make sure that our kids are sleeping well and they're sleeping in a safe way. What are some of your thoughts, I guess, from an infant point of view to help keep them safe when they're sleeping as well as now when they start moving into a toddler stage? Yeah. So there's um, lots of mixed information out there about safe sleep. And one of the things that I think is really important to recognize is depending on where you're listening from, you might have really different safe sleep guidelines. So uh, for example, in Canada, the safe sleep guidelines have a lot of cultural sensitivity in them because uh, people from other cultures and people that are indigenous to Canada have different traditions and different ways of setting up their bed or even the materials that the bed are made out of. So um, that's why you might see a lot more flexibility in Canadian sleep standards compared to the US, which is pretty firm. Generally speaking, we want a child to be on a firm surface, free of stuff, at least until 12 months, at which point that's when you could introduce something like a blanket, and pillows are generally recommended closer to 24 months. So that's the the, the gist around um, what we want to see for a crib for a safe sleep setup. And you also want to make sure that you're keeping any kind of cords, um, blind cords, monitor cords, at least three feet from the crib. So uh, the other one I'm just going to add because I'm a parent and uh, anyone that's got kids is immediately going to know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Stuffed animals, slippery slope. You give them one, suddenly there's 10. You got to be careful with this because what they'll do is they'll pile them up in the corner of the crib and they will use them to climb out. So just be really firm on a limit. They're not recommended until 12 months in the sleep space, but at that point, if they start taking 20 to bed, just know that they could use it to climb out. So put a limit on that. Um, And then- They're an escape risk. So- uh, Huge, yeah. Amazing. And then for toddlers, when we start to transition to a toddler bed, I mean, gold standard is if you can keep them in a crib until three, that's the current recommendation, but that doesn't work for everyone because some kids start climbing out. Some kids are tall and can just get out. Typically around 35 inches, kids can start to climb out of cribs fairly easily. Um, And so if you're transitioning to a toddler bed, just again, be really mindful of, looking at their space, is this room set up safely for a toddler to have complete free reign? Because if they wake up in the middle of the night and they decide, oh, I'm going to play with my toys or, you know, they could do whatever they want at that point, uh, it is important that the room is set up safely. So make sure that furniture is anchored, make sure your cords are managed, that you've really done a good hazard assessment on your room first before they're let out of that safety of the crib. Um, And it doesn't hurt to, you know, maybe like put a little bell on the outside of their door, just in case they do open the door that you hear it, you know, jingle at you. Um, There's always like little layers you can put in as (laughs) safeguards, but you do want to make sure the room is safe when you make that transition. So if you can make it to three, awesome. If you don't, or you need the crib for another baby, just make sure the room is really nailed down safe. 
Now, I, I always heard that uh, infants need to sleep on a flat surface. And is that mainly because if they if it's too soft and they roll over, that it's it's the choking hazard that they can't breathe? At least if it's hard, that there would always be a little bit of air. Like, what, why is it all, like blankets and, and not having stuffed animals? That, that does make sense. But the flat surface, that seems a little counterintuitive. Why is that? Yeah. And... Um... And to us as adults too, because our bodies are so rigid and um, we've gotten into like a different shape, um, that is super uncomfortable for most of us. But for babies, it's very comfortable. And um, if we have them flat from a spinal development perspective, it really helps prevent issues with the development Uh. of the spine. The reason we want it to be also flat and not inclined and flat is that positional um, positional asphyxiation is really the term for it. We want to try to avoid them having any kind of chin to chest where their airway could be compromised. So that's another thing. And recently in the U.S., fortunately, any kind of inclined sleeper was banned, which is awesome um, because that was leading to a lot of issues. But for Uh, Our flat sleep surface, the reason we want it to be firm, yes, is because we don't want them to be able to get their nose or anything caught up in it. So that firm, really good uh, flat sleep surface is the thing that we're looking for to just keep that clear and everything should be good. There's a trend right now with a lot of adults to kind of enjoy weighted blankets and to enjoy this, you know, comfy kind of, you know, it almost takes you back to being an infant all snuggled in there, feeling nice and safe and secure. You have some thoughts on weighted blankets, especially when it comes to uh, kids. Yeah, so weighted blankets are currently, there's just not enough information about them that the American Academy of Pediatrics recently changed their safe sleep guidelines in the US. And they added a caveat that weighted products for babies are currently not recommended, strongly not recommended. So there was also a lot of sleep sacks put on the market that had weights on the chest. Um, And the idea behind that, it was pretty clever. The idea behind that was oftentimes if you put your hand on your child's chest, when you put them down, it feels like, oh my, you know, my mom or my dad's like hugging me and they can fall to sleep. And then we're slowly creeping away with our hand. So what if we put just a really gentle, like weighted thing on the sleep sack? Um, the thing is that they might, they, in some cases, they might be safe. And in some cases, they may not. It could even be child dependent. But there haven't been enough studies on if we have something on the chest, does it change the baby's breathing pattern? How deeply they're breathing? Could it restrict their breathing? Um, And so when we look at weighted blankets, because it could be restricting that motion, that's why the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with that change. And that just happened in June of 2022. So super recent change. Uh, There was a lot of backlash on it um, because parents love that stuff and from a regulatory in terms of like, you know, a sensory regulation perspective, any kids that are neurodiverse in any way, it can be helpful. But for infants, it's just not recommended. There's still also some question marks for older children, like toddlers and preschoolers. But I would say that if you're thinking of that, or if you are thinking of it because you feel your child has a medical need for it, definitely talk to your doctor about it and get their their sense on it because they might be able to give you some guidance one way or another that will relate specifically to your situation. But generally speaking, currently, 
it's it's a no. <laughs> and I love them, so that makes me very sad because I yeah, love it it myself. Yeah. <laughs> You're torn, but uh, yeah, safety first. Temperature is a big deal for, for kids when they're sleeping, uh, too cold, too hot. What are your thoughts um, on how to keep a child properly warm then when it's a, if they're not able to have a blanket, uh, then they're less common, or I guess depending on where you are, but the one that you don't think about as much is a child overheating. And if it's one of those hot, sticky summer days, how do you keep your child comfortable and sleeping throughout that? Yeah, so really overheating is the biggest concern because being erring on the side of being too cool, as long as a child's not freezing, <laughs> then um, yeah. being too cool is uncomfortable, but not necessarily unsafe. Um, and generally speaking, when we sleep, a cooler sleep environment is recommended for us to get a bit of a better, more restorative sleep. And that goes for kids too. And so if you're kind of like struggling, because in the winter, you might think, gee, should I turn the heat on in their room? Um, or in the summer, you might think, is it too hot in here? Do I need to go buy an AC unit for them? So if you're struggling with that, the best thing to do is rather than focusing on the temperature of the room, look at your child and look at how your child is reacting to the temperature. What you don't want to see when they're on their back by themselves in the crib is any sweat forming on the forehead and chest just when they're there by themselves. Now I say that because very real parent scenario, you're sitting on the couch with them watching TV, they fall asleep and then you have this big puddle of like sweat and drool between you <laughs> and you peel baby <laughs> off. The reason that that sweat isn't unsafe is because our breathing, them being on our chest actually helps to regulate their breathing and keep them stimulated and breathing well. But if they're sweating like that, when they're by themselves and it's not because our body heat is interacting with theirs anymore, that's where we run the risk of them overheating. And part of the sort of mystery in safe sleep and, and something that's long been suspected is that if children are overheating, they may fall into too deep of a sleep and not breathe as effectively. So we would like them to be on the side of being a little bit cooler um, and not sweating. So if that might mean using a lighter sleep sack or no sleep sack, or just sometimes you might put them in a onesie, um, or they might just be in a diaper with a really thin sleep sack on top. So play with those layers. But if you do see them sweating, it means that you need to make an adjustment. And so Airflow is a big thing. You know, if you um, don't have AC in your home, can I integrate a fan? The recommendation is just not to put the fan directly on the child um, and rather kind of point it elsewhere in the room just to add airflow, but not, you know, chill them or upset them. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, so speaking of, of, of sweating and, and overheating, sunscreen is um, kind of you hear a lot of different things about sunscreen when it comes to applying it to toddlers as opposed to infants and is it safe is it not and how much how do we keep our kids safe in the sun yeah so sunscreen is an interesting one because uh, generally speaking the recommendation is no under six months and uh, for you know babies that are born like October through December it's like okay well by the time they need sunscreen no big deal um, but babies born at other times of years they might need it immediately 
And so the recommendation from the Canadian Pediatric Society and the American Academy of Pediatrics currently is if you are going to use it under six months, to use it very sparingly and only on affected areas. Um, so the example of that would be, let's say you're pushing them in a stroller and they've got bare feet because it's a really hot day, um, but they've got pants maybe up to their ankles. Do you just need a little bit on the tops of the feet? Where you want to avoid it is um, usually like the tops of the hands. We want to avoid them sucking on it, but also kids rub their eyes a lot and we don't want them sure, to get in yeah. their eyes either. So um, you do have to, to work with that a bit. Shade is best that, and I will say, um, if you're watching the video of this, then you'll see how pale I am. Um, as a ginger person, I will say shade works best. But uh, if you are going to shade them, again, seeking proper shade or using built-in shades that came with your stroller. Um, avoid covering the stroller with a blanket because that can overheat them. Even a really thin blanket can create this like hot thermos effect in there. Um, so use your built-in shades. But if you are gonna use sunscreen, try to stick to something that is mineral. Um, so typically like a zinc titanium dioxide based sunscreen, which thankfully there's so many on the market now, so it's a really easy thing to come across. Um, and those create a barrier. They're effective immediately. You don't have to wait for them to sink into the skin. Um, they're pretty, you know, uh, safe for most skin types. And uh, once they're over six months, then you can use that more freely on the body. But their skin's just so sensitive and still developing, and that's why that recommendation is there. I have a new sense of awareness. I'm not going to say that I'm scared, <laughs> but I'm definitely more aware of some of the, the potential dangers. And uh, I'm definitely at a stage right now in uh, in my son's life where it's like, it's time now. So I certainly appreciate all the wisdom. Um, what have we missed? Like, what, what, what do parents need to know that we maybe haven't touched on that uh, that you see come up oftentimes in, in your coaching and with your courses? What do parents need to know that we maybe haven't covered? You know, my really big things are at the end of the day, we all want our kids to be safe. And especially if you're listening, if you're feeling any pang of guilt right now, I need you to just take that and throw that in the garbage because we don't know what we don't know. So <laughs> we just have to be open to learning more and then making good choices with that education, right? So get yourself informed. Take a class, learn your life-saving skills. My other big one though is please get your car seat checked by a certified car seat technician. Um, so there are some great resources. The majority of this are either no cost or extremely low cost. Um, and most people, myself included, operate by donation as volunteers. So you can get this service. It's super accessible to everyone. Um, and have people make sure that your car seat's installed correctly and that your child is harnessed correctly. Um, it's. I think there's a lack of awareness of how frequent motor vehicle collisions are. And it really is the scariest thing that we all do every day for the most part. Um, but you can give yourself that control by just knowing that you're doing your part to keep your child safe. And so just have someone that knows what they're talking about, go and look at your car seat for you. Um, typically that takes about 45 minutes to an hour, which might be surprising, but in a car seat check, we make sure your seat's installed correctly, you feel confident on what that looks and feels like. And then if you have questions like, hey, when do you turn this around? Um, when is this outgrown? Did I harness them properly? We can answer those for you. But you want to get that information from a certified 
child passenger safety technician. So depending on where you are, there's two resources for North America. In Canada, you can go to a website called sipsac.org. So that's cpsac.org. And that's the Child Passenger Safety Association of Canada. In the US, you can go to safekids.org, uh, which is safe kids. <laughs> and both of those have lookup tools so you can find someone that's in your community and get your car seat checked. And I really just can't emphasize that enough too. Like that is something that I wish had been accessible to me when I was pregnant and when I first had my daughter. I'm very grateful I took that training myself when she was only eight weeks old because I made every mistake with my car seat. I was so confident I was using it correctly. Boy, was I wrong. It was a huge reality check for me. Um, and that's why I do what I do because I don't want parents to feel bad about those mistakes because there is too much to know. And we just have to remain open to learning um, and just know that there's people out there that want to help you and we're not going to judge you. We just want everyone to feel really supported and do their best job that they can do keeping their kids safe. So um, go get your car seat checked. Please get your car seat checked. Love it. And uh, to, to share a personal story uh, for all those listeners that may, may feel a little, little embarrassed. Um, we just found out a week ago that we've been using our car seat wrong this entire time. So there's a little insert that comes in uh, for infants that are, I think, like four pounds, like for very, very um, small infants. And we had that insert in the car seat the entire time. And Chase, most kids love being in the car and falling asleep and he never really did and we're like oh he's fussy in the car and then finally we realized wow this we've had this like newborn insert in this entire time he's four months old and he's a big four months he's a chunky little guy and as soon as we pulled it out the car seat just opened right up we're like wow not only are we embarrassed but we're also grateful because now he sleeps in the car loves it and it was just such a simple little thing that we just like you said, Holly, you don't know what you don't know. So fantastic. Listen, you've shared so much. There's a lot of resources here. You also have a fantastic Safe Beginnings First Aid course. Um, so for those people that want to maybe get in touch with you or, or find out a little bit more about how to keep their kids safe, what's the best way for them to to reach out to you or, or, or find your resources? Yeah, the best place to find me is actually on Instagram. So uh, my Instagram account, Safe Beginnings, I give parents just easy tips to keep their babies and toddlers safe. Um, and through the link in my bio on my Instagram, you can find all of our stuff. So we've got resources, we've got a baby proofing checklist that you can download. Um, we also have, as you mentioned, um, a few courses. And one of our courses is our signature infant child CPR choking and injury prevention workshop. Um, it's online. So you can take it anywhere. And it is broken up into tiny little bite sized pieces. It's fully video. Um, and then you can kind of just take it in a little bit at a time. I always uh, find out after the fact when people send me uh, an email or a review that a lot of people watch it in the middle of the night <laughs> when they're feeding a baby. Um, <laughs> but that's a great time to do it. And you can do it on your phone, your computer, whatever you have next to you. So um, that's, that's our main core offering as a company. But my Instagram is really just a great place to stay up to date on all things baby and toddler safety. So definitely check that out. So it's uh, safe beginnings. 
beautiful. And the old cliche, I think, really does hold true here. It's better to be safe than sorry. And, and I think that's pretty much what you're talking about is, is helping to prevent a lot of the potential injuries that could be happening without being too you know crazy about it, but just being aware. Um, and I know I, I've, I've learned a lot. So Holly, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, and all the resources that Holly mentioned will be in the show description as well. And uh, really do appreciate your time, Holly. Thank you so much for having me.